suicide game just yesterday It's made all that I learned The emptiness of life examined Time can't be Hello out there, welcome to another episode of Things I Learned While Learning Other Things. This is an attempt by me, Joe Morahan, and my brother, J.S., to provide you with a series of interesting, informative, educational, and we hope enjoyable stories that will help you navigate through those high seas of life. Today we introduce Trial of the Century 7. Does Superman exist? the story of the Leopold and Loeb trial. And so it was that Clarence Darrow, the famous defense lawyer himself, had come to town. And he immersed himself in trying to understand his clients. Leopold most, but Loeb as well, were not impressed with Darrow's frumpy look and his furrowed face. Besides, he was 65 years old at the time. How much energy could he devote to the exercise to this particular case? Could he maintain the workload? The boys were unsure of this. They were unsure of the man, despite his reputation. But as Darrow burrowed into their lives, sought to understand Leopold and Loeb and and brought in world-renowned experts, psychiatrists, alienists, as they were called at the time, to examine them, to understand their thinking, and to explain their obvious deviance, the boys began to trust in Clarence Darrow and in his approach to their defense. (laughs) And why not? Clarence Darrow was their only hope, and it was a slim one at that. And furthermore, his complete and philosophical opposition to the death penalty was a cause to which Leopold and Loeb could readily acknowledge that Darrow was even more committed to than he was to his two clients' defense. They would trust him. Well, because they had to. For no one else could possibly bring the energy, be as committed, and do better work on their behalf. And so it was that Leopold and Loeb began the work with Clarence Darrow. And studying these two boys, their incredible minds, but their narcissistic, psychopathic behaviors, if nothing else, would prove intriguing to the experts whom interviewed them, explaining the conditions of their minds, their behaviors, motivations, and morality in such a way that it might prevent the boys from being executed in the near future. Well, well, that was going to take some doing. Now, Nathan Leopold was only 19, but he had already graduated from the University of Chicago, um, reportedly on his way to uh, Harvard Law after a gap year to be spent traipsing through Europe. And Richard Loeb, he had only weeks before graduated from the University of Michigan at the age of 17, the youngest graduate in the history of the University of Michigan. And Loeb had recently himself been accepted to the graduate school at the University of Chicago. These two boys were atavistic, brutal murderers? How could this possibly be true? Well, yet they had already admitted to the murder. America had seen its share of violence by this time. And on more than a few few occasions, violence in Chicago had shocked the world. But this, this was different, beyond the pale even. University of Chicago 
boy geniuses turned remorseless psycho thrill killers? No way. But let me digress here only briefly and only slightly to establish just how freakishly, nightmarishly, unbelievable the situation appeared to be at that moment in 1924. The University of Chicago already had earned its reputation as one of the nation's foremost academic educational institutions in the entire nation. Only serious intellectual students attended the University of Chicago. And that was its sole purpose, to attract the country's finest minds in its teaching professors, in its researchers, and in its student body. The charter, as established when conceived, founded, and funded by John D. Rockefeller in 1891, was just this. This place was never envisioned to be a frat boy party school. No way. 132 years later, the University of Chicago has come to be known for its serious thinking, but coeval, but ever-present, sarcastic, self-deprecating sense of humor that, <laughs> that always amused me when I went to graduate school there nearly 50 years ago now. Geeks, true, but geeks who knew they were geeks and could laugh about it, able to make fun of themselves. Let me, let me make five comments about the University of Chicago. Number one, I remain unconvinced that I was not admitted to the University of Chicago as a lab rat experiment. I mean, I'm convinced I was, in, I was admitted as a lab rat experiment because I was the dumbest person ever to have attended the University of Chicago. Of that, there is no doubt. Number three, Bookstore t-shirts captured entirely the spirit that pervades the University of Chicago campus. For example, a t-shirt inscribed, The Level of Hell, Dante Forgot. Another, University of Chicago, the place where fun has come to die. Another one, the University of Chicago, where the only thing that goes down on you is your GPA. And number four, when the University of Chicago decided to um, bring back college football after 30 years, the University of Chicago administration, via the student newspaper, invited any and all to join in a competition to compose what would be the university's new fight song in support of its resumption of football. The winning entry would be subject to a vote by the University of Chicago student body. This was a big deal after 30 years. And the winning entry by a landslide says something about student moxie, about understanding themselves. And I think it is, you know, it is indelibly memorable and yet so captures the true spirit and soul of the University of Chicago. I mean, who is not fired up by the sound of Xerxes, Thucydides, Peloponnesian War? X square, Y square, H2SO4. That's the fight song. Proof positive, the University of Chicago will not be joining the SEC anytime soon.
you know, as an aside, at the same time that the University of Chicago is putting together um, its new fight song, Stanford University was about to rid itself of its longtime nickname, the Stanford Indians, out of respect for Native Americans. Stanford students in 1972, by an overwhelming majority, voted to change the university's nickname from the Stanford Indians to the Stanford Viet Cong. Okay, the Stan- even the Stanford administration had had enough and it could not allow this atrocity to stand. And they put the ixnay on that motion and soon announced that Stanford forevermore would adopt as its symbol a green tree and the official nickname of the university, the Stanford Cardinal. Not Cardinals, Cardinal. Which even today, 50 years later, no one has ever, any idea what all this means or, or represents. I mean, but what is most important, I, I guess, is that lefty loons, and this is of major significance, really, because no one can possibly take offense at the word cardinal represented by a symbol of a green tree, and that's very important to them. For no one should ever be offended by any thought, word, or deed provided only Everyone always must agree with these lefty loons with their every thought, word, and deed, or risk being shouted down, canceled, ostracized. Anyway, back at the University of Chicago. Number five, since its founding in 1891, Chicago, the University of Chicago has produced 97 Nobel Prize winners. Harvard, Harvard has produced 150. But then Harvard's been around since 1636. Columbia's produced 100 Nobel Prize winners, but it's been around since 1754. So I think the University of Chicago academic picture, the atmosphere is totally clear or should be totally clear. So now returning again to Leopold Loeb, the sons of two wealth wealthy, well-regarded scions of Chicago businesses, uh, students at the University of Chicago, sadistic thrill killers? I mean, how could this possibly have happened? Leopold and Loeb were friends, neighbors, and certifiable geniuses. These weren't, however, your average normal teenage boys. Their reading list did not look like that of the average teenage boy either. You know, while the Hardy Boys... Um, Hardy Boy Mystery Series would not be published for another three years. It wouldn't have mattered if the series had come out a decade earlier because Leopold and Loeb wouldn't have been interested in that mystery series or any other mystery or detective series written to appeal to young teenage boys because they were already deeply immersed in reading books authored by Friedrich Nietzsche. And if you're reading Nietzsche at age 13, 14, 15, you are not likely to be interested in reading uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald's This Side of Paradise or, or any books by uh, Virginia Woolf uh, who, who'd fill her pockets with rock, uh, rocks and jump off a bridge 20 years later. But Leopold and Loeb reveled. They reveled in the works of Nietzsche. Nietzsche influenced them, moved them. And after Thoroughly digesting his philosophy, the two boys not only bought off on the idea that supermen existed, you know, Nietzsche's Ubermensch. No, Leopold and Loeb believed, and they were utterly convinced that they themselves were supermen. 
Perhaps, you know, perhaps the boys might have benefited, you know, both of them, had they taken more to heart Nietzsche's warning that one ought not stare into the abyss for too long because the abyss will stare back at you. Keep in mind, too, that Leopold and Loeb were studying the writings and philosophy of Nietzsche about the same time that Nietzsche's evil sister befriended Adolf Hitler, and the two of them were perverting the author's ideas into a twisted philosophy that upchucked the evils of the Holocaust. Turk took firm root in a poisoned Germany and drove a Nazified, Aryanized Germany to brutalize Europe by force and impel the world to conflagration. Since they had been four or five years old, Adults repeatedly had told Nathan and Richard they were special, special kids, and they would grow up to be special adults, that they were extraordinary, super geniuses. And all of this was, in fact, true, no doubt about it. But something went haywire. Something would go haywire along the path from boyhood to adulthood for Nathan and Richard. In it would not be apparent or, or made manifest for nearly a decade or more. But there were signs things had gone off the rails, but their parents weren't paying much attention. They were, they were really busy. They were, there were business deals to do. There were balls to be attended, galas to sponsor, tra you know, travel beckoned them. And as a result, there were governesses to be hired for the boys. Uh-oh, the boys were now to be groomed. Well, we'll get there. And Leopold and Loeb, and they interpreted all this adult signaling as confirmation that they indeed were transcendent human beings in possession of astonishingly rare intellects, superior intelligence beyond reason. And these gifts, well, they, though these gifts permitted them to rise above the laws, didn't it? Hmm. It meant that the you know superior talents, superior intellect allowed them to ignore rules and regulations, which which had been put in place for purposes of placing boundaries on the nature of the existences of unimportant, average, far lesser, far less talented human beings. Not them. Nietzsche was right. There did exist certain rare men, supermen, exempted from ordinary laws of civilized society, whose laws have been designed for the express purposes of keeping ordinary men in check. Supermen, by design, were not subject of these laws, whose only purpose was controlling and constricting the lives of very common men, ordinary men. Supermen were not liable for anything they might do, any harms they may cause in exercising their superior intellect or exerting their will. And as such, they were free. They were free to do whatever they wished, absent any hesitation or regret at driving every nail all the way to the board. 
I mean, Western civilization has been constructed on a few fundamental principles, respect for human life, respect for property, recognition of the equality of man under law, and, and the need for the punishment of men whom committed crimes against persons or property. And this is what was meant by the principle of justice for all, truly. But Leopold and Loeb decided that they, as supermen, possessed of superior talents and intellects, they were in a position they could and would test the theory that they were indeed not subject to laws designed only con to constrain the ordinary men. They would test Nietzsche's assertion that one has to take a somewhat bold and dangerous line with this existence, especially as whatever happens, we are bound to lose it. <laughs> In ways that Leopold and Loeb could never have imagined, the prescience of Nietzsche's insight would prove an accurate prediction of what proved to be the remainder of the lives of Leopold and Loeb. Leopold and Loeb had fail, hadn't failed too many tests in, in their lives, but they are about to enter uncharted waters, indeed the high seas of life, where anything is possible, anything could go wrong. And that's where we're going to leave off the story of Leopold and Loeb. And we will return to it next. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. I slipped from the harbor, head out Crystal blue water surrounding me Tap to the wind, taste the sea breeze Tropical heaven on the coral sea A little more rum I think of my wife What did I do? Have I ruined my life? Tell her I've changed, become a new man I promise I will and I know that I can When did the skies change, when did we turn back? How am I ever gonna get myself back? The sea's now boiling and I'm getting cold I've lost my sails, got to find a way home Alone in my boat, I think of my wife Lost in a drift on the high seas of life Years from tomorrow, days from the land Nothing can save me unless fate lends a hand Storm it is worse than life, no control The wind and the waves are taking I look to the stars, there's none I can see I'm afraid fate, she has answered me Only moments my story will end There was a story I wanted to send Oh, how I dream for the calm of the sea A beautiful face smiling back at me the sea is boiling and I'm getting cold I've lost my 
sails Got to find a way home When did the skies change? When did they turn black? How am I ever gonna get myself back? Alone in my boat I think of my wife I'm lost in a drift On the high seas of life When did the skies change? When did they turn black? How am I ever gonna get myself back? Alone in my boat I think of my wife I'm lost in a drift on the high seas of